Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to Three, a part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm Gil Gross with Joel Drucker and Amy Lundy. The match we have been waiting for and hoping for all year long is upon us, and it comes at Roland Garros in the semifinal. Friday afternoon, uh, Carlos Alcaraz and Novak Djokovic will clash. And let's just start with the hype around this matchup and the excitement around the matchup. I have my own list kind of going in my head of the most ant- highly anticipated matches in, in recent times. And most of them, if not all of them, involve our big three in, in some way or another. Uh, but Joel, what is your take and your perspective on just where this stacks up among highly anticipated matches in recent times? This is a fantastic thing, even more so than... You know, I think back, it was intriguing when Pete Sampras played Roger Federer for the first and would prove the only time at Wimbledon in 2001. Federer then was kind of in the ascent. He'd cracked the top 20. But now we have one guy who's the new number one, the longstanding number one, the the 36-year-old who's mastered a certain way of contemporary tennis versus this exciting player. I mean, it's just, it's just tremendous. Very, very exciting. It's different than when the big three play each other i mean like if if novak plays rafa roland garros that's huge um but we've seen it before you know it's it's another chapter in their rivalry and and of course i know myself and a lot of people we drop everything to watch that kind of a a match but this is different because they've only played once before and it was best of three and it was in Madrid that match you love to talk about Gil which deservedly so and now now you can finally maybe have another one to talk about but um this is best of five at a grand slam and the stakes are so high and the the hype just because of the 16 year age difference it it takes on a different complexion Well, the generational aspect, I mean, generational aspect, like the, like the movie all about Eve, where it's like, okay, the longstanding leader, and now along comes the new one. And he, he jumped into that number one spot, and he's already won one slam title. So he's not some credibility already. Yeah, the generational aspect is a big thing. With the age gap. This has happened before, right, Joel, like, you think about McEnroe versus Connors, and it's just we have we know we have a shorter window of that kind of matchup happening. It's not going to be 15 years we're watching Djokovic Alcaraz. It is a small window of opportunity that kind of adds importance to it. But also, how does that change the way you look at the matchup? Well, you see how precious it is, and also that you've got one guy who. We know Novak isn't quite at the end, but we do know he's 36, and there's a lot more ahead for Alcaraz than there is for Novak. Everybody knows that. So I'm thinking back to, um, you mentioned the age gap, but Jimmy Connors, Ken Rosal, 1974 Wimbledon final. Connors is 21, Rosal's 39. They met a few months later at the US Open. Connors is 22, and 
Rosal was 39. So, but that was like a tremendous effort on Rosal's part to to get that far. And Connors destroyed him in both those finals. It was a good matchup for Connors, and there were some other factors. But that's a long gap. It also says so much about how uh, how sustainable Novak's career has been. That he's you know it's not like it's like wow look at Novak he he got to this he got to the semis at this age no yeah we that was expected you know it's not like Novak is it's unexpected for him to do this here he is he won the Australian Open Carlos won the U.S. Open and before then Novak won Wimbledon so it's the winners of That's the right. last three majors but in the last two they haven't been in the field together which adds to this I mean Amy you bring up scarcity. And I think that's a big deal here. The fact that not only have we only seen it once, it was over a year ago. And Alcaraz is better than he was at that time last year, especially because he was dealing with some stuff when it comes to handling the pressure. Maybe not yet in Madrid, but after he won Madrid, I think that became kind of an issue for him. I mean, the NFL owns a day of the week because of scarcity. If there was a football game on every day, it wouldn't be as big a deal. But it's... You know, you only get to see your team play on Sunday for for 18 weeks out of the year, and, and that changes it. So I think that that also kind of adds to the mystery and the intrigue here. Uh, it's It's got everything. So to me, like, I think I think back to last year, the Roland Garros uh, quarterfinal between Nadal and Djokovic, uh, and that was interesting because Novak had won the last one. So it was, okay, Mm -hmm. can Djokovic win two in a row against Nadal in Paris? And that felt big. So that's up there. I think the Medvedev-Djokovic US Open 2021 final is up there because the Grand Slam was on the line and Djokovic was only one match away. I think the Wimbledon 2019 final uh, with Federer and Djokovic probably even surpasses this one uh, because it was a final and because it there was a sense that this was one of Roger's last chances and it felt like it had really big slam race implications. So those are the ones that kind of stick out in my head. I feel like this is right there. Some recent ones of note. Well, then you could go like the, the O2 Agassi Sampras U S open final where they had both lost early at Wimbledon. No one knew at the time that that was going to, including Pete, that that was going to be his last ever match, but nonetheless, the, Long familiar rivals. So it's interesting about the 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 length span of that. I mean, because they had been number one in the world in 1995, and now seven years later they're playing. But now with Novak, I mean, Novak has added such new terms to longevity. I mean, and him and Rafa, I believe that one last year. I would instead of scarcity, we'd say plentitude, and that was pretty right. good too. I mean, wasn't I believe the tenth time they'd met at Roland Garros last year? So, but that doesn't that doesn't diminish my um. My hunger for it. I mean, I like pizza <laughs> again and again. It's, yeah, it, but but it is the law of supply and demand. And quick gut check: who are the two best players in the world? Probably Alcaraz and Djokovic, and they just haven't met all that much, which which makes this feel even bigger. And you you really spot on, Gil, when you say that Alcaraz is not the same player he was a year two years ago, and I think that was driven home by the Tsitsipas match because they famously played in the U.S. Open, very close match in 2021, and 
the match against Tsitsipas was just a clinic and a schooling. And I, I was struck by how much Alcaraz has improved even from that great level in 2021. So this has all the hallmarks of a, of a potential blockbuster. Let's hit on those quarterfinals. I was going to go there, Amy. Uh, okay. The form coming in, we'll start with Alcaraz. Musetti, who is playing great tennis in the fourth round. Shapovalov in the third round. Shapo not in great form, but we just know that he's uncomfortable and dangerous and talented. Uh, and then Tsitsipas, the former finalist, the two-time Monte Carlo champion in the quarterfinals. Alcaraz has never been threatened in these last three matches, e even a little bit. I mean, it's been total cruise control, and it's been amazing to see. I, I did not expect, even as someone who picked Alcaraz to win the tournament before the tournament and uh, was unfazed by the Marojan upset, did not concern me at all. Even it being in that position, I'm stunned at, at how dominant this has been. I think these last, since you mentioned these last three opponents, Shapovalov, um, Uzeti, Tsitsipas, these are kind of people who have fallen the uh, treacherous shot maker. We've all played enough tennis to know you don't want to be known as a shot maker primarily. You want It's nice to have that as a, as a secondary attribute. But if that's primary and you're playing someone as fit, fast, and focused as Alcaraz, I mean, I thought, for example, with Tsitsipas, I thought he's not enough, he's not dynamic enough or consistent enough. So he's going to get trapped in between both of those and this and, and, and even more so with the other two guys. And so Alcaraz, you know, for all his brilliance of things he can do, he can also settle into kind of like consistency mode and then strike mode. And Musetti was a great example of that, of how um remind you of this story. I wrote about it from a, a, a jazz musician once told another, he started making this gesture with his hands and the guy who was less skilled said, what's that? And he goes, play faster. Is what's that mean? Play slower. Then he did this other thing. So what that mean? Play better. And you saw <laughs> in that Musetti match, every time, every time it was like fairly early. Okay, all right, play better. And he just just upped it and left to it's like a, it's like a, watching a guy in a sprint. Just okay, I'm leaving you behind. And these are, these are top twenty players. It's amazing. Yeah, both guys. I always do my my Roland Garros power rankings. Both Musetti. Uh, Musetti was in the top you know, 14 of that. And, and Tsitsipas was well, uh, well within the top 10. What about uh, Djokovic uh, quarterfinal against Hachinov? And uh, before then Juan Pablo Varias, uh, Varias, uh, a good draw, somebody who had never been that far at a major, somebody who does not possess big weapons and Novak did roll in that match against Hachinov. He dropped the first set. Uh, I've been kind of blasting this stat out here because I think it's amazing since the start of 2021, Djokovic, when losing the first set at a major, is 13-2. and two. So he does it again. He comes back from behind. Shaky a little bit, even in the second set. He wins that one in a tiebreak. Uh, He's now 5-0 and oh in tiebreaks here at Roland Garros. He hasn't made an unforced error in any of his five tiebreaks. I think he's played something like 47 points. But things really didn't click into place from a level standpoint until the third and the fourth set. Amy, how did you feel about that performance in the quarterfinals ahead of such a big match uh, in the semis against Alcaraz? 
Well, before I comment on that, I just want to take you back to uh, Carlitos' run and Shapovalov, Musetti, and Tsitsipas are all one-handed backhands. Yes. So now he's going to go up against a two-handed backhand, which is one of the best backhands in the world, um, <laughs> maybe first or second to his own. Uh, so that actually uh, could be a slight advantage for Novak. I just wanted to put that out there. But now we're talking about Novak's run. Um, what was interesting to me, and, and Jim Courier elucidated this really well on the telecast, Novak has really been experimenting with this loopy ball uh, forehand. Um, he called it a moon ball. It's not really a moon ball, but it's it's just a really a um, lot of top spin on it, which you don't see Novak hit like ever. Um, and I texted you, Gil, and I'm like, why is he doing this? And you said, well, it's worked for him at times in, in his first few matches. And sure enough, he found that it just wasn't working for him against Hatchinoff. So he changed tacks and, and you know, blew by Hatchinoff. So I find that, like, in a best of five, Novak has this problem-solving ability and he has the luxury of time and space to do it. And that doesn't bode well for Alcaraz because I don't know if at his young age he has the experiment, the experience to experiment like this. Um, but I too picked Alcaraz pre-tournament. Now that the tournament is underway, remember way back in the day before the tournament, we were concerned about some of Djokovic's injuries. Yeah, that hasn't borne out at all. So now that the tournament has gone on, to me, if I were an odds maker, this is a pick 'em match. I don't see how anyone can pick this match with any certainty. It it is just so there's so many complicating factors. It's just really hard for me to tell. Well, for, well, for the record, if I yeah, just, on, just just want to jump jump in here and say that the actual odds are in favor of Alcaraz. And last I last I saw last night uh, was like in the minus one eighty range. So I don't know what the implied probability of that is off off the top of my head. But I think the reason why Alcaraz has come in a favorite like this is because of the recent form. But Joel, I want you to kind of pick up. Well, that's that's what I think too. I think the reason for this would be the the form over the last few months, and uh, as opposed to Novak, just over the last few days. I mean, Novak only the last few days has he started to show what he showed months ago when he went to Australia, and Alcaraz has set the the tone over the course of this year to a to a reasonable to a good degree. And of course, he missed Australia, so we're a little insufficient data on that front. I think though for Novak. It'll be more of a command performance for Novak based on how he's played this year than it would be for Alcaraz. That doesn't mean he's the deep underdog. And I agree. It's like if you're doing it like a political poll, you'd say it's maybe it's 51%, 52% Alcaraz, maybe. And and that's not even a that's not even a, a proper thing. So it's very, very close. And all these different factors, all these different factors play into it. I think the thing you mentioned about experience, Amy, is really good. My um a good source friend of mine, Brent Abel, a coach and a very um prominent age group player, he thought the longer it goes, the more that might aid Novak for that reason. The experience factor, the problem solving, maybe he takes the measure of all of Carlos's, um, yeah, he's, ex experimentation is no problem for Alcaraz. That's fine. But does, there's a certain point, does he find himself running out of questions? And this is going to get to my 
my Novak tiebreak genius. And and I was actually really impressed how um, Novak, when he lost that first set for Hatchinoff, I thought, oh my, is this going to be a very physical, long, like a match he played against Del Potro once at Wimbledon that left him, even if he won it, really worn out. It didn't turn out that way. And Amy, you texted us, what, I think was it early in the third set that says, Novak so has this match now. Yeah. And he pretty much <laughs> did. From then on, it was pretty much pretty smooth sailing. So yeah, this is very, very exciting. Yeah. Uh, first of all, to follow up on on my last thing, uh, odds are actually minus 210. Implied probability of that is 68%. So the books have 68% Alcaraz. I actually think everybody's getting duped here. I agree with you, Amy. Mm -hmm. Who cares that Alcaraz beat Tsitsipas and Musetti and Shapovalov in dominant straight sets and Novak lost the first set and went to a tiebreak in the second set against Hatchinov and Alejandro Davidovich Fakina took him to two tiebreaks? How do I don't think that matters at all for what's going to happen in this semifinal. I, I think that's all window dressing. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. No one who analyzes it does. I mean, I think this... I think that this odd stuff is is a reflection of a market and where people are are assigning certain things. It's that's different than if you asked if you asked twenty five coaches or experts how they saw it. None of them would say, "Oh yeah, he's a sixty eight percent chance of winning." Uh, but uh, but the you're right. It is a market. Okay. It is a market, and I don't want to get too into like I get it, but I I don't want to get too into also like how odds are made and stuff. But you're right. It is a market. I, I do think though the prevailing. Uh, sense is that Alcaraz is playing better. And I just think at, from a discussion standpoint, that is undeniably true. If you just have watched the recent matches, yes, that's true. I don't think that matters for Friday. It doesn't matter that he played better in the match before. Uh, to me, what I tweeted out is this is not swimming. This is not Formula One qualifying. Two players get on the court together and they are connected. There is a relationship. There is disruption. Exactly. Just because Alcaraz looked better against Tsitsipas doesn't than Djokovic did against Hatchinov doesn't mean you can copy paste that to what it's going to look like for the semifinal. Well, that's why predictions are predictions and they're not necessarily analysis. And that's where we come in. So maybe we ought to okay. you know, let's look at at the tennis. Yes. Okay. I mean, let's do it. I don't know. I'll play the Gil role. I'll play the Gil role for a second. Gil, you you know you know the contemporary game. You learned from a Spanish raised coach, and you and you're a contemporary baseliner. So how do you see some of the X's and O's playing out? Okay, well let's start with the Alcaraz perspective then. What I think he's going to look to do first of all, I think the biggest thing that kept working for him in Madrid was the serve plus one off the kicker out wide on the ad side, and the one area where Djokovic just doesn't get as much pace on his backhand is when it's ab high above his shoulders, which is really true for, for almost any two-hander. It's hard to do against a Zverev or a Medvedev, six foot six, or even a Hatchinov. But against Djokovic, you can get it up high above his shoulders and attack the next ball because it usually doesn't have the depth and the pace. Not only do I think Alcaraz is going to look to do that with his kick serve, I also think he's going to look to do that off the ground heavy topspin forehands into Djokovic's backhand. 
And just to try to draw that attackable ball and push Novak back uh, with the heavy topspin, attack with height, is essentially what it boils down to. And then from there, I think Alcaraz can can use his forehand, and we know how he combines the pace and the drop shot uh, so well. It disguises those two things so well. And really, I think when you're playing Alcaraz, almost the, the name of the game is you can't let him you can't give him anything to attack because nobody's really better, especially on a clay court, from that position. So that I that's what I think is going to be one of Alcaraz's main approaches. Amy, what do you think? Yeah. Um, although I will say that knowing that Novak studies and has an analytics team, he will know exactly when and where the tendencies will be to use the kick and as perhaps the greatest returner in history he has seen that that heavy kick to the backhand a million times he knows how to neutralize it so i think it's a good strategy but uh if it's not working there's got to be a plan b um i also when you get to it i have some thoughts on how novak could get to carlos Joel, anything on, um, on Alcaraz and his path to victory and absolutely. then we'll get to Novak? Well, sure. So well, here's here's the way I also think about it. First of all, I've always wanted to, I've always wondered, and it's interesting given that uh Novak's idol growing up was Pete Sampras. I've always wondered how Novak would fare versus a sustained attacker. Because they had there haven't been too many at the highest levels. Federer's had obviously his share of moments, but some like Alcaraz is a little different, particularly with with the kick serve, with the angle volleys. I'm not saying Alcaraz is gonna be Stefan Edberg and run that sequence 50 times. Nonetheless, that whole way of pressing Novak that way, I think is interesting. And the bigger picture, the thing is also, we talked about the generational thing. It's also stylistic. Novak has play has mastered what a, a coach would call today's game, the game of today, the modern game. And I say this all the time to parents and coaches and players. I don't want you learning today's game. I want you learning the game of tomorrow. And here Alcarez is our look into how tennis might be played. It's a stylistic thing. He's not just like Federer, Sampras. Federer had a had kind of a variation of the Sampras game. So he was just taking it into a new century. Alcaraz is bringing something entirely different stylistically and even developmentally. He's no, he, Alcaraz is four years old when Djokovic won his first major. So he spent his entire life studying the big three and seeing what questions am I going to build to ask them? I mean, Ferrero said, this great thing. He said, ask him to go to the net in a match point. He's able to do it. He's able to do every kind of shot. And Alcarez's expansiveness, that's that's his thing is the breadth. Whereas Novak is a little more narrow and yet, you know, incredibly brilliant. So I tell yeah, so that's some of my thoughts on Alcarez. I think it's combined with a level of speed and power that Certainly Nadal had in his own way, but you're right. Alcaraz is a much more offensive package of it. That That's one area where I think if you boil it down to, to the skill sets that these two uh, have, I mean, Alcaraz, Alcaraz does have more pace generating ability and he does scramble at this point better. I, you know, better than anybody uh, on tour right now by far. So it's hard to get the ball past him as Tsitsipas discovered in that quarterfinal, and he gets the ball past you or puts the ball in front of you for a drop shot winner about better than than anybody else. So I'm curious to see, like, how will the physicality 
uh, just the pure speed and power, how will that look uh, against Novak on the court? Because I think like from a technical ability, when it comes to the mental side, the, the adjustments that the experience that you're talking about, Amy, that's where we know that Novak is right there, but is the, are the raw capabilities of Alcaraz going to, going to present a really big challenge for Novak? I also think that Novak has better overall depth um, because while extremely powerful, especially on the forehand, um, he doesn't have that consistency of depth. And I don't care who you are. Nobody likes a ball deep at their shoes. So um, I don't know. Just in terms of accuracy and placement, I give Novak the advantage there. Um, but I think, I don't know if you want to get to this yet, but I think Novak's going to be looking very closely at that loss in Rome to Marozan and picking apart exactly how that guy was able to get to Carlitos. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah. yeah. So let, let, let's go to Novak. To me, what that would mean is a lot of serve plus one drop shot. So drop shot the first ball, like don't, don't even let it get past that because now you've missed your opportunity. Alcaraz is going to return from deep and he's going to try to move up. So your best chance to drop shot is off the plus one. Uh, that's what Marojan was able to, to kind of implement. And then the second thing, which I think is going to be really important and center has done this well too. You have to make Alcaraz really uncomfortable off of his own plus one you should be clubbing his serve when you can. And I'm pretty confident mm -hmm. Djokovic is going to do that. But like, if you can be very, very aggressive, because we're not talking about Federer or Sampras. This is a serve that you will get your chances to actually hit out on because he'll miss some spots here and there. And I think Novak needs to be really on top of that and very aggressive, even on the first serve return. I think you know, this makes it, me go ahead, Joel. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Go ahead. I, I think in that match, um, I looked this up. Marazan used the drop shot 12 times. A lot of them were very memorable. Um, and, and while that is, you know, impressive, that wasn't actually what won him the match. He, he, you're, you're right in the, the aggression though. And, and the drop shots can certainly be part of the aggression, mm -hmm. but, um, the second serve returns, he crushed, he blistered, he played first strike tennis. Um, so I'll be really interested to see if Novak comes out with aggression because we know he's capable of that. And then the other thing is just looking over some of Alcaraz's recent matches where, you know, he dropped a set. Um, or he was challenged or that loss, I have noticed that the forehand is slightly, ever so slightly more prone to errors if pushed out wide. So it, it's actually the backhand that's completely in lockdown a lot of the time, and you cannot get errors out of that. But if if you're looking for to bait him into spraying a little bit, maybe go at the forehand out wide. Wow, there's some interesting patterns. And and, and it's, we know, of course, Novak and his team are kind of like mapping this out in chessboard-like way. 
Um, with Novak, these terms, we've talked about this a lot with Novak, and I mentioned this to you guys a couple of days ago. I want to ask our audience and us, and I want to go on like a, a year-long quest to find some other language that transcends these terms of offense and defense, particularly defense, because I think in tennis, it happens so fast. You know, it's not like a football game where the squad is on the field. It's not even like boxing where you take 10 punches and you're kind of countering. The, the offense-defense thing is so fast that there's something that transcends it. Because when I think of Novak, particularly in those tie breaks, yeah, he doesn't miss. He's applying pressure, not necessarily defense. He's not just reacting. So I, I want to I find some other language for this. I'm going to even study some other things, whether it's martial arts or dance or movement. There's some other thing he does. I mean, the way this guy plays in these tiebreakers is unbelievable. I mean, it's 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 at a whole other level, and it speaks to his Jesus. Not that he's saying, "All right, hang in there with Carlos until you get to six all," but I just I just and I think you're right, Amy, about these ways Novak is going to study it and learn from it, and, and over the long haul of a match, that's what makes this match interesting too. Is that it's best of five, and not that, and obviously Novak has played more of those than Alcaraz, but lots of stuff to think about. Yeah, and I, I really hope they do uh, play a tiebreak because Alcaraz has a very opposite approach to to Novak. Carlos, I, I think he comes to net more. I think he drop shots mm -hmm. more. I think he he lobs more. I, I just think it's it's very much ser serve and volley. It's kitchen sink mode for Alcaraz in the tiebreaks. Right, but it's not reckless if you own it. In other words, in other words, the tendency for someone to say that. And I know you didn't say, yeah, it's he's going high risk. It's not it's not risky if you own it. It's not risky for Steph Curry to shoot a 35 footer. That's American basketball. Right. So it's so it's it's just it's it's a mindset and it, it gets to some developmental models. It gets back to how for players this good, how they were learning the, envisioning the court when they were eight years old, 10 years old, goes back to that to even practice sessions and practice matches and 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 how you want to few things yeah i mean novak novak's mode is more or less i ain't missing but i he's applying pressure all right he's definitely applying pressure novak in those tiebreakers yeah I, I love that point joel like one thing you'll never hear from me if i'm commentating on an alcaraz match is oh he went to the drop shot risky like or or ballsy it's like no just a shot like a shot that he's super comfortable with and can execute over and over again like it's automatic there is right. nothing there's nothing risky or bold about it it's just one of his shots so i love that point uh i look to more to yannick sinner amy i think than than marojan when i was thinking about this that's so it's funny because i I've, I've thought a lot about what has yannick done to make alcaraz uncomfortable and i think that has been mostly about hugging the baseline you know, minding the court position with Djokovic does really well and delivering constant power and pace off of both wings. Just don't give him time. Just rush, rush, rush. And I think that's the best way to make Carlitos uncomfortable. And I think Djokovic is actually really well suited to execute that. The problem is this is a slow red clay court. So I have no doubts that Novak can do that, but Will the conditions let him do that? That's my big question. Yeah. Um, if you want to take away time, it's really hard to do on a clay court. Um, you know, I have my questions about who will have the mental stamina in 
some of the longer rallies. And, and again, we know that the short rallies are still that category that are the most important, but I think a long rally can impact um, what comes next. And we know from the data that if you play a long rally, the chances are well over 80% that the very next rally is gonna be a short rally. So th there is a connection between the two. And both of these guys have shown that that they can play the long rallies. Uh, so that's what makes this so interesting. Who, who what's going to give there? Like, who's going to have the stamina for this? Well, and that's another way where I seek um, some more transcendent data or, or knowledge or language. Yeah, the long rally, the zero to four, but but the statement made of winning a long rally and the carryover effect. I mean, again, I think sometimes the, these evaluative forms, I mean, it reminds me of the time I was talking to someone about coming to net. He said, well, the first six times I did, it didn't work. So I stopped. That's not the point. The point is to run it a lot. And then when you do it at four all, you, you might still, it, it can work. So the faith in it and how that works. And so you make a good point, Amy, about the, the yield of the long rally. I wonder what the data is on whoever wins the long rally what happens in the next eight rallies? You see what I mean? The carryover yeah. effect, the eight, next eight, 10 rallies, who wins those? To me, one of the most fascinating statistics that I've ever heard is that most of the time, um, and it, it's something like, you know, 51 or 52% of the time, the person in the match that won the majority of the long rallies loses the match. <laughs> it just, why would that be? It just I, well, but see, so, well, this is the thing with some data too, and 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 that occur. I mean, they lose the match fifty one percent of the time. Yeah, it's it's just above fifty percent. But well, it's, it's like it, okay. So, say for argument's sake, it's fifty fifty. Isn't you know, that fascinating? Yeah, it, it is. I mean, the sample size of long rallies are a lot smaller than the sample size of short rallies. So you're looking at a smaller slice of the, the pie if you're looking at the full match. So that's where I could see some randomness in that data set, but over the course of an entire data set of matches, like a very large one, uh, that that's pretty shocking stat. It's one of my favorites. Of, of top 100 players. I mean, that's what, that's what that is. I mean, I, I suspected, I suspected plays out differently at the, um, at the recreational level. Well, you always say that, uh, Joel, but you don't yeah. have any data. And actually, at I, I do know that at every level, including there was one level where the um, where the rally lengths were slightly higher, and I think that was like boys' fourteens. But at every level, it is so similar that the most common uh, the most common occurrence uh, in any sort of uh, tennis at any level is a missed return. That is the most common play. Um, zero to four make up the preponderance of most points at every level. Uh, mm -hmm. People argue with me over this, but it's just, it's true. Oh, no. Well, well I'll say it. I'll say it now and we'll get to this match. Um, yeah, I think the zero to four happens at lower levels because a lot of people can't keep the ball doing. And at the pro level, at the higher levels of the pros, it happens because they must. At the pro level, they need to end the points that quick because if they don't, someone will do it to them. And I think at the lower levels, it happens because a great many people are incapable of keeping the ball in play that long on a sustained basis. So 
So, but that's a different, that's a different discussion. That's a different show. That's a different show, but it is interesting how it occurs, how it occurs at all these levels and the mystery turn quality. So the mystery turns and the service winners. But it, you right. know, just to, I mean, we, we may end up editing this out, but not capable of keeping the ball in play at what speed, you know what I mean? Or what level? So right. the, the game of tennis is very scalable. So, you know, this morning, um, Coco Goff was not capable of keeping the rally going against Iga, you know, keeping sustaining long rallies and X number of points because um, Iga's level was just too high. Well, I mean, you, you just can sort of scale that down to every level of tennis, including college, including um, juniors and that kind of thing. And that's why you get the same behavioral and and the same patterns and the same statistical tendencies at every level. Now, there are some differences with regard to the serve, but that's another show. All right. Uh, it, it wouldn't be an episode of three without without a uh, detour somewhere. <laughs> let's um, let's go to predicting this match uh joel you you can you don't have to predict the outcome if you don't want uh but you can still uh talk about what you expect to see here an arduous fourth set with a potential fifth that's what i see occurring in other words um and i guess if i i'd say i'd be more surprised if novak won in straight sets than i would be surprised if alcaraz won in straight sets that would be more surprising to me um yeah, I'm I'm really excited to see this because again, it's so unknown. I mean, the Madrid one happened, yeah, and as we've talked about Carlos was ascending then and he's even better now. Two out of three, Madrid with its altitude. Now we're at Roland Garros. I I'm incredibly excited to see this match. I I want to see I want to see also this Novak. I did some research. I saw he averages about 29 night rushes per match. Is he gonna do that more, less versus Alcarez? Not not to be on him all the time as much as just shake him up a little and put him back on his heels to put, you know, make, make sure Alcaraz doesn't attack him sometimes. Cause I, you know, Novak shows signs of innovation over the course of his career, many different tactics. Also, I think the, the drop shot, all right. Combined total drop shots, 40. A lot, a lot. I mean, both of them are doing it so well in this tournament. And that's why I think court position is going to be really important. I don't think either man can afford to, play too deep behind the baseline uh it's going to happen sometimes i mean sometimes you get pushed back but it's going to spell trouble amy those what do you cat think? And, those cat and mouse points are so entertaining and most of the time the drop shot is followed by the person who hit the drop shot coming into the net so you got two guys at the net and then there's different pace volleys there's hard volleys there's you know crushing the ball there's little lobs there's retrievals um and it just makes for such high quality entertainment so i can't wait all right i am uh i'm going with alcaraz i think that the things that Novak uh, are has a big the biggest advantage in in this head to head. Some of the serve return battle stuff, some of the his ability to kind of 
rush his opponents. Uh, I feel like the conditions make that an uphill battle. I think that really favors Alcaraz, just uh, the speed of this court, how uh, how heavy these tennis balls have been. And I think the speed and the power is really going to uh, come out. And I don't really have too many questions mentally that Alcaraz can't do this because we know that if there are any issues mentally, uh, Djokovic will take full advantage of that. I mean, he he always, always will. Uh, but I, I do think Carlitos is is ready. So uh, we will be back after the match uh, to talk about what went down. Really excited that for that. That'll do it for this episode of three. We're available on all podcast platforms. We appreciate it. If you leave a rating and a review on Spotify and Apple, and if you're watching on YouTube, like, comment, and subscribe. We'll see you next time on the next episode of three.